Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, um, we thank you because you're so very good to us. Even um, as we, we wait on you, you're good to us. Father, we thank you that we can come you know, and worship you this morning and, and call ourselves your church. We thank you that we can declare your truth openly and do so without fear or worrying for our lives. Father, we understand that we occupy a privileged place in history. And we live in a privileged part of the world because many of your people have been persecuted because they chose to follow you. And Lord, we understand that a time is coming that even in our country, there will be those who declare your name. that They will be maligned and hated and suffer for the cause of Christ as well. But at, as for this moment, as for this time, Lord, as for this day, we thank you for the peace that we now enjoy. Father, prepare our hearts today to receive your word. Plant your, your word deep in the soil of our hearts so that it can take root. Help it to grow and help it to bear fruit in our lives Sovereign Lord, we just uh, pray that, um, that your word, as we approach it today, and as it's preached today, that we ask that you'd help us to set aside anything that we would impose on the text. We pray that you would remove anything that would cloud our ability to see you for who you really are. Help us to put away traditions. Help us away put away preconceived notions um, and, and, and beloved uh, theories and anything that, 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 that gets in the way, any of the love of the flesh or influence of our culture as we submit our minds and our hearts to your glorious truth. And Father, we are all at different places in our lives right now. We all have different needs. We have those who have suffered deep loss. We have those who are sick. We have those who uh, went through surgery, Lord. We just pray that you'd meet all of us where we need you to meet us today. And pray that you'd help us to grow ever more in love with you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I just want to good morning to you. It's a beautiful day outside today. Um, and if you brought a Bible with you or a Bible app on your mobile device, mobile device, wow, okay. <laughs> if you have a Bible app on your mobile device, and I know that you do have one at least, hopefully, a church app anyway. Uh, but if you'll turn with me to the book of Romans, we're going to be reading from chapter number 8. And uh, the book of Romans is actually the very first letter in, found in the New Testament. It's actually not the first one written. It actually was written later. Uh, but it's the first one in the New Testament. And it's right after the four Gospels and the book of Acts. So um, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be reading beginning in verse 18. Um, and Paul, the author, uh, offers us these words. This, this is the word of the Lord. It says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who was subject, who has subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But it is we, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it 
with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century Baptist preacher, once wrote, he said, Stand still, keep the posture of an upright man, ready for action, expecting further orders, cheerfully and patiently awaiting the directing voice. And it will not be long ere God shall say to you, as distinctly as Moses said to the people of Israel, go forward. I want to welcome you back to um, the, the fourth and final part of this uh, series titled uh, Waiting on God. And as we talked about in the last several weeks, the, uh, the idea, the big idea of this particular series is simply this. That in spite of the fact that we hate to wait and in spite of the fact that we are impatient and that we don't want to wait for anything... We were created by God himself to have to wait on him. We were designed by God to wait. That's the, res- the reality that we, we've, we've come to terms with. It's the reality that we need to, to hold on to. It's the big idea that we're talking about. We were created in such a way that we need to wait for God. Why? Why is that? Well, because God is completely sovereign and in control. God is all good. He is all knowing and he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He works for our best interests, right? God is everything that we're not because we, as God's creation, are not sovereign. We are not in control. We are not always good. Though we might do good things, we're not always good, right? We are not all-knowing, and we certainly don't always do the things that are in the best interest of ourselves or anyone else. And so the reason why that we need to wait on God is because God is everything we're not. He is all sufficient. We are insufficient, right? He is perfect. We are imperfect. He is complete. We are incomplete. He is eternal. We are temporal. He knows all things. We don't. He knows the beginning from the end. We can't even remember the passwords that we need for, for, to go online with half the time, right? That's why they have that little feature that said, forgot your password. <laughs> God is everything that we're not, which means we are simply designed to wait on God because we are wholly dependent upon him Anyway, we are depending on God for everything. And so in the first week of this series, we talked about the fact that not only were we designed to wait on God, but ultimately waiting on God is actually a spiritual discipline that we, are, that we need to practice that's actually good for us. Waiting on God actually is beneficial for us. And we talked about this about four reasons why. Number one, waiting on God demonstrates our submission to his authority and sovereignty. Number two, waiting on God... It is, 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 shows how much value that God has to us. Number three, waiting on God is how God changes us. He changes us when we wait. And number four, God is, is ultimately waiting on him, is ultimately in our best interest anyway, because he knows the beginning from the end. Um, that's week one. And then week two, we talked about waiting on God when our lives change, because if there's anything that we can count on is the fact that everything in our life is always in a state of change, right? And it's during the times of change that we need to wait and trust in him. In fact, we outlined five principles found in the scriptures that we need to apply to our lives that help us to wait on him. There are things, five principles that we need to apply to our lives as we wait on God as life changes. Number one is the principle of devotion. We need to be wholly devoted to God devoted to him only. The second is the principle of fearing the Lord. We need to have a reverential fear of God. We need to have an an awe and a respect for God because he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Number three is we need to to walk in the spirit of humility. Uh, The principle of humility says that, that in light of who God is, knowing who we are, we humble ourselves, you know, into God's hand and wait for him. And then the, uh, the fourth principle is the principle of teachability. 
right? That we're to be teachable, all right? Which means we need to actively seek God's wisdom and guidance as we face decisions by being in his word. And number five is the principle of holiness, right? As we wait for God to guide us, we need to be committed to growing in our obedience to the word of God, to his revealed word. And I promise you, if there's anything that, that God's will is, is he, he, his will is for you to be obedient, Right? And, and the Bible tells us that, that if we'll do these things, right, if we'll walk in these things and we wait on him, we will not be put to shame. And then last week, we talked about waiting on God when life is hard. Because just as sure as life is, is going to change is the fact that you're going to face difficult situations. All of us, every single one of us, right, are, we have been through and will continue to go through times of deep pain. Times of unbearable sorrow and times of agonizing difficulty. We have all endured and will continue to endure difficult times in our lives. And it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're young or old, married, single, rich, poor, good looking, ugly. It doesn't matter, right? Everybody, we all endure suffering, right? And in those times, especially in those times, it's hard to wait on God. And it's in those times we get upset and we get frustrated and irritated. And we wonder, what's God doing? What's he up to? All right? I mean, why am I even here? We ask questions like, Lord, why me? Why is this situation happening? Where are you? We cry out in our pain. These kinds of questions that we wrestle with. And we find ourselves that in that period of life that, that, you know, we, that we ask questions like this when things don't make sense to us. But as we talked about, waiting on God when things are hard is not about knowing all the answers to the questions. Waiting on God in our pain is about trusting God and understanding that, number one, everything that God does, he does for his glory. Everything that God does, he does for his glory. Right? Even when he allows us to go through pain, he does it for his own glory. Number two, God makes us wait in our pain because he loves us. Right? That's, the, that's the lesson, hard lesson we learned last week, looking at the story of Lazarus. It didn't make sense to us sometimes, but the reality is, is God is in control and he knows what he's doing. Number three, we don't always see the big picture when we suffer. Like when we're going through the things that we're going through, we can't always see how God's going to work these things out. Right? But again, we don't have the long view that God does. Number four, God's saving other people's souls is more important than our comforts. We need to come to terms with that. If God can save souls through your suffering, you're going to suffer, right? Number five, oftentimes we don't understand, we won't understand, even if God was to tell us in the moment, right? In the story that we, re- we read about Lazarus, when God told um, Martha plainly, you know, what he was going to do, he was going to raise uh, Lazarus that, that day, and she still didn't understand. He told her, you know, right to her face, and she didn't get it. We are just like that. In fact, we're, sometimes we're like little kids. In fact, we have one of my dear friends, uh, their, their, their grandson uh, is, is going through chemotherapy at a really, really, really young age. Okay? And I'm telling you, he doesn't understand. Right? All he knows is he's going through a difficult time. But there is a purpose for his suffering. He just can't understand it. We're just like him. And even if God was to explain it to us, sometimes we wouldn't know in the moment. Right? Number six, it's not about understanding anyway. It's about trusting. And number seven, God takes no pleasure in our suffering. That's what we've come to, to learn. God weeps with us when we, we suffer. He wept with, with his friends. God even doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the unrighteous, as the, the Bible tells us. And number eight, God does not waste our hurt. You know, the word says, all things work together for those who, call, who love God and called according to his purpose. God never, ever, ever wastes our hurt. He always uses it 
for a greater good. In fact, uh, Kim uh, listens to uh, a lady uh, named Lisa Turkhurst. And one of the things, of all the things I've heard Kim talk about, there's this one thing that's just stuck with me over and over again. And she says, God can take your mess and turn it into a message. And that right there is really an example of how God does not waste our hurt. And ultimately, God himself, what we kind of understand is God himself entered into our suffering with us. We don't simply suffer on our own, right? Jesus came to the earth and he suffered and died for us. He suffered a horrific death. He suffered agony, right? Uh, and, and he suffered the agony of the father turning his back on him, you know? So ultimately, our suffering is not in vain. God chose to suffer alongside of us. So in week one, we talked about waiting on God in our devotional time. Week two, we talked about waiting on God um, when our life changes. And then last week, we talked about waiting on God when life is hard. Well, this week, we're going to wrap up this text by talking about waiting on God to finish up his redemptive work. We're waiting for Christ to come back. We're, we're, we're going to talk about waiting on God for him to come back and make all things right. Because if there's anything... Anything at all that we're waiting for as Christians, anything that we're looking forward to is the promise that Jesus one day will come back and make all things right and make all things new. That's what we're waiting for. That's, we're waiting for the return of Christ. We're waiting for the time when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We are all waiting for that great and glorious day when Jesus will return and put everything right forever. And ultimately, we're waiting for God to, to reign supreme and his justice to be done. Right, And so, um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about waiting on God for that day. But let me, let me start off by saying this. What we're going to be talking about today is how, how we wait for God and for his return. Okay? And what I mean by that is, is, is we're going to be talking about how we are to live, how we're to behave, how we are to, um, to, to act as the followers of Christ, as we wait for that that day. Today's conversation is not going to be about the timing of Christ's return. Uh, just just so you know, nobody knows when that's going to be. Okay, all right. The Bible makes that clear that nobody knows that. All right. And today's conversation is not about is not going to be um, about governments, and it's not going to be the about the identity of the Antichrist when Jesus comes back, because nobody knows that either. In fact, when I was really young. Um, I was told lots of different things about that. In fact, uh, some people said that it was Nikita uh, Khrushchev that was the Antichrist. Then it was Ronald Reagan, right? Because he had six letters in both, all three of his names, right? And then it was M- Michael Gorbachev. The truth is nobody knows, okay? And, and, and the only people that, who claim to know that are people who are trying to sell you books, okay? Just, just so you know, I'll save you a couple bucks. So, um, uh, and today's conversation is not going to be about schemes of eschatology with, with fancy-sounding words, you know, for studying the end times. Today we're not going to be talking about preterism or premillennial dispensationalism or how about this one, interadvental amillennialism, if you've ever, never heard of that before. That's the, okay, these are just theological mouthful. We're not going to be talking about those things today, okay? Not to say that we, we, we won't end up talking about those things at some point. In fact, I actually have a series that I'm working on right now that... Um, well, we will explore the book of Revelation. We'll talk about things of the end times. It's just not going to be 
today. And so we're, uh, so we're not going to talk about how America fits into the scheme of Romans and, and the book of Daniel. And we're not going to be talking about whether or not that, that, that the mark of the beast is some RFID chip they put underneath your skin or any other conspiracy theories today. Okay. Today's concern isn't so much about how the end times will work itself out. Today's topic is, 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 is for something. I mean, uh, that's a topic for a different day, but today what we're going to talk about is how we are to live and how we're to carry on and how we're to conduct ourselves as we follow Christ while we wait for God to work out the end times. Okay. And, and so, um, the question that we're going to ask is how are we supposed to live and act as we wait on Christ's return? And, and here's the reason why we're going to take this approach. All right. Is because the church has fallen in the past to two extreme views. Anytime you fall into extreme views, you know, you're in trouble. Okay. But there's two extreme views on the return of Christ. The, and, it, um, and, and, and both of these views have been really counterproductive. Number one, the first view is what I call the status quo view. Okay, the status quo view is where Christians think that the Christ of return is a long, long time away, and it's not something that's going to happen anytime soon. And so because of that, there's no real urgency to live a holy life. There is no, there's no urgency to change. There's no urgency to share the message of Christ with the rest of the world. All right, it's the perspective that everything is kind of status quo. It's just going to continue on like it always has. That, 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 that the world is going to move along um, like it always has, and it will do so for many more years. And Christ's return is something will happen at some point. It's just not anytime soon. And among those people who hold this view are nominal Christians who, who really don't think much about eternity. They're, you know, we live in a world that really doesn't care so much about eternity. We, we care about our Facebook statuses. We care about our 401ks. We, 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 we care about, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, summer, you know, summertime softball leagues and, you know, but we don't really care so much about, uh, about eternity. Okay. They don't have, there's not a sense of urgency. A lot of people aren't really thinking about their own death or the fact that, that Christ can come back at any moment. They're not really worried about eternity to come. And so they've grown comfortable and they just kind of look at the world and, and see that things are just kind of like matriculating along. I mean, yeah, there, there's spikes in, in evil in activity, but the fact is they just kind of like, there's not any cause for alarm for them. Right? And so they have this view that status quo, there's no sense of urgency. And then the second view is the actual extreme opposite of that. Okay? There's the perspective that I call the, the sky is falling. All right? This is where the Christians are so focused on the fact that Christ can come back at any single second. That's all they think about and that's all they talk about. All they talk about is prophecy and raptures and, and, and how events that they read in the newspaper sound just like what they're reading in the Bible itself. They have a Bible in one hand and a, and a newspaper, well, not a newspaper, but, you know, a tablet maybe, but a newspaper in the other, right? And, and, and they make charts and, and, and timelines and they, they listen to all the same preachers and read all the same books about uh, blood moons and harbingers and Bible codes and, and all this other stuff. And they're convinced that they are absolutely the last generation. There's no possible way that God's going to let it go on any longer than it has. And though you can't fault them for being watchful for the return of Christ, because we are supposed to be watchful. We're supposed to be waiting for the imminent return of Christ. You can, though, certainly fault them because this obsession with the end times has actually cost the church dearly in the last 50 years. 
Okay, one of the things that we've talked about many, many times is, is, is the dominant view that we have in church culture right now is what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. We've talked about it before, okay? But if you haven't heard the term, what that simply means is that many people have this idea that if I'm a good person, God's going to take care of me, right? That God's kind of like this cosmic butler, and it's about me being moralistic so I can have a happy life. That's what the dominant view in Christianity today is. And as we talked about, the reason why that perspective is so dominant is because the church has failed to teach and reteach foundational orthodox theology. The church has become theologically anemic in the 20th and the 21st centuries. And one of the leading causes of this, this, this anemia is the church's obsession with, with, with um, in the last couple of generations, especially with, with, with third order doctrines such as, such as the, uh, the end times. And they've done so at the expense of teaching first order doctrines like the inerrancy of scripture. Okay? You talk about something that, that people will make fun of you for is if you believe that the Bible is God's inspired inerrant word, right? Secondly, the, the sovereignty of God is another thing that's been neglected. And also the divinity of Christ has been neglected in favor of eschatology, right? And the result has been a theologically shallow church raising up a theologically shallow membership that's not equipped to stand their ground when they go to college or stand their ground when they talk to people outside to challenges of their faith. And they're certainly not equipped to evangelize the lost who are asking more and more sophisticated questions all the time. And so this obsession with the end times has led to really some unbiblical ideas, right? And I, and, and I say this because I've heard these from, from church people. Okay? Ideas like, we really don't need to worry so much about meeting people's physical needs. We just need to worry about people hearing the gospel. Right? We don't really need to worry about feeding people so much and clothing them. We just need to save souls because Jesus is going to come back any day. We, yes, we need to worry about the gospel. But we still need to worry about the clothes and the feeding too because Jesus said to do that. Right? Right? People say, we don't really need to worry about the environment because Jesus is coming back and it's all going to burn anyway. Well, I've heard that justification by business people who want to not care about environmental issues because they think that, you know, it doesn't matter anyway. Jesus is going to come back tomorrow, so guess what? We might as well use it all up anyway, right? Or, or we don't need to... This is the really, the really crazy ones, by the way. We don't need to save for the future or plan for the future. In fact, we need to sell all our belongings and go out and buy billboards and tell people that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. So people, right? I mean, we've, we've heard about that, right? We don't need to worry about teaching people theology. We just need to make sure people know enough to have their fire insurance, right? And so Jesus is coming back any second, so they don't need to know all that theology stuff. Well, those are false ideas, Right? And, and, and because of these, these ideas from the sky is falling perspective, right, that the church has become theologically weak. Well, the truth is, this is not how God wants us to live and behave. He doesn't want us to be complacent when, when, as, as those people with a status quo, like it doesn't matter, you know, because it, Jesus is not coming back anytime soon. But at the same time, he doesn't want us to be obsessed so much like the sky is falling crew, right? The fact is Jesus wants us to be ready to meet him at any time. Whether by our death, by the way, most people will meet Christ by death before he comes back, right? Whether by death or by his imminent return. But at the same time, he wants us to be busy working to further the kingdom and accomplish the works that he has established for us to do. 
Let's be really, really clear about that. He wants us to be feeding and loving and nurturing and caring and preaching the gospel. He wants us to meet people's needs and share the gospel wherever we go. He wants us to be ready to meet him at any moment, busy doing the work of the kingdom. He wants us to to live waiting on him to come back. He wants us to be alert and attentive and anticipating his arrival, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's 500 years from now. Right? And so what I want to share with you today is, is what does that really look like? What does being ready look like? Well, I'd like to share with you um, a couple of texts uh, about that. Today I have actually have a couple of important texts by both Peter and Paul, two of the most influential apostles. Um, and and, and, and well, my, my goal here is, again, not really so much have you understand exactly how the end times works. My goal is how do you live anticipating Christ's return. And so the first text I want to share with you uh, is is Paul talks about uh, Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting... Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the, the, the glory of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. Now, in this text, there's a couple of things I want to I point out to you that I think that are important for us to understand as we wait for God. Number one, Paul says the grace of God has appeared and it is training us. Right, And it is training us for a purpose. And that purpose is to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions. We are to turn our back on sin as we wait for God to return. And we are to turn away from sin and the lust of this world. And we are to live self-controlled, upright, godly, which means like God, godly lives in this present age as we wait for the return of Christ. So number one... Waiting on Christ's return means to be training and growing in order to renounce and turn away from sin and the passions of this world. And we're to learn to live, right? And, and these are specific words that apply to Christians. We're to learn to live lives that are self-controlled. It means we control ourselves. We control our appetites. That we are upright. We do what's right and correct. And, and to be godly, which is to be God-like, right? So waiting on God is about growing in personal holiness, which is what we talked about before. This is an important component to waiting on God is to grow in our personal walk with him towards holiness. Now, the funny thing is that I actually know dozens of people who profess to be Christians. And I mean, this is literal, okay? Dozens of people who profess to be, to be Christians and who are happy to tell you everything that they know about the millennium and about raptures and about the beast and antichrist. They're happy to explain in graphic, graphic detail, you know, how the book of Daniel and how book, the book of Revelation fit together. And they're happy to argue, you know, and they're happy to talk down to anyone who doesn't share their view of things. But when you look at their life, though, their life doesn't look at all like what Paul's describing here. They have, they have deep convictions and they have lots of personal, personal, deep opinions about this particular subject. But then when you look at their life, it's like, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to cause you to be fearfully trying to change before God comes back here, right? They're not living a, an upright, self-controlled, godly life. They're not growing in holiness. They're, you know, in, in fact, they're, oftentimes some of these people are living the opposite of that. Right, they're embracing godly, godlessness, and they're, they're embracing um, worldly desires. Now, understand, 
This is not how we're supposed to live, right? We're to live to do what God has called us to do. We're to live in a way that Paul is instructing us to. We're called to live and walk in personal holiness before God returns. Now, does that say that we need to be perfect? No, because we're not going to be, right? But we need to live in a way where we are continually keeping our eyes fixed on the Lord, where we want his standard to be our standard. That's why I tell people, it is more important for you, right? Before you, before you master the, the book of Revelation, master the book of Romans, all right? Before you, you know, master the subject of eschatology, master the theology of God and the theology of the church and the theology of man and understand who God is and who you are in light of that. Before you try to figure out the last days and how that plays out, figure out how to walk in personal holiness before God actually comes back. I promise you, I promise you, God will be much more pleased with you if he finds you doing what Paul says to do rather than figuring out all the riddles of the end times and living a life that's not godly. In fact, let's take a look at what it says here. But Paul says the second thing is, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession, who, now look at this, who are zealous for good works, People who are zealous for good works. Now, this is the second thing I want you to notice about this text. God wants us to be purified. He wants us to walk in personal holiness. And he wants us to be zealous for good works. Or in other words, he wants us to be passionately excited and engaged in doing the good works that he's called us to do. The good works that he's already already prepared for us to do. He wants us to be busy as he, as we wait for him to return, not just sitting idly by, you know, counting the stars. He wants us to be busy doing good works. In fact, in fact, that's exactly why he saved us. If you look at Ephesians chapter two, Paul says this, he says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing it. It's a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast for, okay. This word for, because we are his workmanship Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And notice what he says here. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Understand that. God has already planned for you to do things. God's already got something in mind for you to do. He has good works for you to accomplish in your Christian life. Right? That's why you were saved. You were saved by grace through faith so he can do something through your life. That he can accomplish something through you. Which means he has work for you to do, to do while we wait for Christ to return. You see, if Christ comes back 100 years from now, then you know what you'll do? is You'll spend all of your life um, uh, getting things done for the kingdom of God. But if Christ comes back tomorrow, then you, he will find you busy doing the work that he gave you to do. And guess what? Either way. Whether it's 100 years or tomorrow, if you're doing what God's calling you to do, then God's glorified. So number one, we wait on God by training for godliness and walk in holiness. Number two, we wait for God by getting busy doing the work that he's called us to do. We wait on God by serving him. Now, now the second text I'm going to share with you is from the Apostle Peter. Okay? And, and as I said, Peter was a contemporary of, of Paul. They actually became you know, good friends. Uh, but, but more than that, Peter 
was a direct disciple of Jesus Christ. Peter hung around with, with Jesus. He was really, really, really close to him. He was actually a part of Jesus's inner circle. And so he knew Jesus very well and he knew Jesus's teachings very well. And so he's an authority on this subject. And so I want you to, to look at what Peter says. So we're going to find that in Peter chapter three, second Peter chapter three, beginning in verse one, Peter says this, he goes, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful desires. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop right here and I'm going to look at this just little section. Because what happens is there's a tendency for a lot of people... Uh, particularly those who obsess about the end times to read that, okay? And read Peter's words and, and, and they want to read that in the light of today's context. And they will read, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their sinful, their own desires, okay? And what they'll do is they'll, they'll read that and go, hmm. They don't read it in the, 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 the context of the scripture, but they'll look at the world today and they say, see, Jesus is coming back any minute. Because it says right there that people are going to be scoffers and they're going to be scoffing and they're going to be following their own desires, which means we're the last generation because that's exactly what people are doing right now. But, but actually, there have always been scoffers scoffing and, and there have always been people following their own desires since Christ left. Peter's point isn't to say that that's going to happen immediately preceding Christ's coming back. He's saying is always be ready to meet Christ. That's certainly going to be a sign of, of when Christ returns. But guess what? People have always scoffed and will continue to scoff, right? In fact, we live in, again, we live in a pretty privileged generation right now, right? And that, that certainly things are going from one place to the next, but they have always scoffed. And that's the Peter's point is that Peter's point is that, that we need to be ready to meet Christ because he's, he's also going to talk about the opposite view. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things have con- continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. This is the status quo view, right? Where's, where's God? Where's Christ? I mean, everything's going along like he always said it was going to, right? And for they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and, and, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the, the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter basically is saying God's judgment is absolutely coming, right? And then he says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord to the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me just stop right here. Okay. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. But is patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, that all should reach repentance. The reason why Christ has not come already, the reason why God has not judged the world already, the reason why it's not all come to an end already, 
is that he is patiently withholding his wrath so that people can repent and be saved. That's what he's saying. Now, what does that mean for you and me? Since we're already waiting for Christ to return. What that means is this. We need to wait for the return of God by evangelizing the lost and calling people to repent. Right? That's what that means. Because the fact of the matter is, is when God judges the world, it will be too late. There will not be a second chance. It will not be another opportunity. All right? When God judges the world, it will be the last opportunity for people to repent. Which means he has given us this time to call sinners to repentance now. He's given us this time to preach the gospel and share the hope that we have in Christ. He has given us the time to share with our community and, and, and our world the hope that we have in Jesus. And so we can actively wait on God by sharing Jesus with the world. Look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This is the part that we have to keep in mind. It come like a thief in the night. It can come at any time. Again, tomorrow, today, a hundred years from now, it'll come like a thief in the night. And when, when that happens, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed, which means you, your good works, okay? Your good works and your lack of good works will become apparent when God judges all things in the end comes. Verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to, to be in lives? Look at that. Of holiness and godliness. He's, he's saying what, what basically Paul says. You need to live holy and godly lives as we've been pointing out. Right? Waiting for the hastening or waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which... Um, the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth which, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, it's a big word. Therefore, in light of that, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And I want to stop right here because I want you to see something here. It says for you to be found. Let God find you at that time. Be found without spot or blemish or live. And he says to live in holiness, basically. Right. And then he says, look at this, to be found at peace. What an odd expression, right? To be found by God when he comes at peace. Now think about this. Peter says, you are to wait on Christ's return. You're to wait on God to come back. You're waiting for him to judge the world. And when he does come, that you'll be found at peace. Now this is important because, because um, if there's anything that I know about most of you and even myself is we're not always at peace. Right? Because, I mean, because tell me, I know a lot of you are stressed out. Right? A lot of you are really frustrated. A lot of you are really, really worried about the future. Some of you are worried about family members. Others of you are worried about money. Some of you are worried about your job. You're stressed out about your relationships. You're stressed out about the economy. Some of you are all wound up and stressed out about politics. Right? You're stressed out about lots of things. Some of you sitting right here have already wandered off in your own minds thinking about things that, that, that are stressing you, thinking about things you know, that you need to go get done here after you leave here today. You've already made that list, right? Some of you are already thinking about tomorrow and thinking about the things I got to get done just to keep my head above water, right? 
you are not at peace. And many of you, right, even worse, right, are struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness. That's not peace. Many of you are, are struggling with, with frustration with other people. You're not at peace with the people in your life, right? But here it is, Peter, in black and white, right here in this letter, he says, right after being spotless and being holy, essentially, right? He's saying to be found at peace when Christ returns, let you be found at peace. You see, we are supposed to be a peaceful people. And, and, and that goes for all the ways that we wait on God, right? When we wait on God in our devotional time, we're supposed to be at peace. When we wait on God, when life changes, we're supposed to be at peace. When we wait on God, when, when, when life gets hard, we're supposed to be at peace. When we are supposed to wait on God for the return of Christ, and we're supposed to be at peace. In all these ways, we need to be at peace. But how? How do I get there? How do I achieve that peace? Well, it's really about your theology, as my wife says, theology, theology, theology. All you ever talk about is theology. <laughs> but really, it's about our theology. Okay? It's about what you believe and understand about God. Right? Because if you truly believe that God is sovereign and in control and he's all-knowing and all-good and he works everything out for your good anyway, and you truly understand that you are wholly dependent on him anyway, then peace should follow. If you truly like, understand that and believe that, then that peace should follow. Because the only real choice you have then in light of that is to trust in God. That's the choice you have when you understand. When your theology is correct, your only choice is to, is to trust in God and allow him to work things out in his own timing. Even his return. That's how you have peace. Amen. You trust in God to do what he needs to do, and to be who he says he is. And for that reason, the, the reason that you don't have peace is because you're still trying to control things you have no control over in the first place. The reason why you don't have peace is you're not fully trusting God to handle the situation. The reason why you don't have peace is because you keep trying to sit down on that throne in your heart that's supposed to be occupied by God. You keep forgetting that God is sovereign and in control and you are absolutely not. You see, you're to, you're to be found at peace because being at peace is the fruit, is the real fruit of a heart that trusts in God. It's the natural byproduct of trusting in Him. If, if, if God is for us, then who can be against us? God has promised to never leave us or forsake us, right? He has promised that all things work together for those who love God and called according to his purpose. We've known these things. We've heard these things, right? Peace is the, the fruit of the heart that really fully trusts in God. We're not at peace because we are not fully letting God be God. So we need to be peaceful as we expectantly wait his return. Verse 15, it says, and count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. So even Peter said the letters of Paul are hard to understand, okay? 
So if you don't understand them right when you first read them, then you're in good company because Peter struggled too, all right? He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. Now, I just want to, I want to point something out here. This is a sidebar thing, but this is a really important thing for you to understand, okay? Um, Peter says here something that's really interesting about Paul's letters. He says, they're hard to understand and that people twist them as they do with other scriptures. And the word that Peter uses right here for scriptures in the Greek is the word grapha. Okay, and that word in the New Testament, anytime it's used in the New Testament is always used in reference to holy scripture. Okay, this word is always used of God's word, which means Paul, Peter is clearly saying that the writings of Paul are, in fact, authoritative, holy scriptures. Peter, the, one of Jesus's best friends, said Paul's writings, the stuff that he writes is, in fact, the word of God. Now, this is important for us because some of people will tell you, well, I just don't believe Paul. I, I, I listen to Jesus, not Paul, because Paul, what he said, isn't really scripture. It didn't actually become scripture till later. Well, guess what? There it is in black and white. It was scripture from the very beginning. Okay, so verse 17. Um, you, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with error of lawlessness. People and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, notice what He says here. He says to take care that you are not carried away by by error or lawless people, and then lose your own stability. Okay. Or in other words, you need to be careful. Not to, be, not to be caught up or swept away by false doctrine and false theology. Because, because if you do, you're going to lose your theo- theological stability. And if there's anything that we see in our common time right now, is that there's a lot of false theology and a lot of false doctrines. And people are getting swept up in it. That's the most popular kinds of Christianity, by the way. Right? Just pray to God and he's going to make your flat tire going flat, right? You pray to God and he's going to put money in your bank account. That is the false theology of our time. And the false theology of our time right now is saying, hey, you do what you want to do. It doesn't matter, you know, because that right there inside of a woman, that ain't a real person until it comes out. That's false theology, my friends. That's a false view of life. That's the false theology that we're, that we're caught up in. Right? And he says, he says to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me say that again. I want you to hear what he's saying. He says to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is making it really, really clear that we need to protect our hearts and our minds from false theology and false doctrine by growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Which means as we wait on Jesus to return, we need to be growing and maturing in our understanding of Jesus. We need to be learning more about him. We need to be learning more to be like him. Which means we need to do all the things that that we can do in order to grow. Like time in the word. Time in prayer, quiet time, waiting on God, fellowship, corporate worship, small group Bible studies, serving the Lord. All the things that help you to grow in the knowledge of God, we need to be doing. One of the most important ways that we wait for Christ to return is to, be, is, is to, learn, to, get, is, is to, to learn to be more like him. Right? And then by extension, we need to defend the truth. We need to defend our doctrines. We need to defend our orthodox theology, right? We don't 
allow ourselves or others, for that matter, to be swept away by every wind of doctrine. We stand and contend lovingly, though, for the truth of our faith. Now, the last text I want to share with you uh, is the one that we opened up with. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. He says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy of comparing to the glory that that is to be revealed to us. Waiting on God is about anticipating the fulfillment of God's promises. It's about understanding that the suffering that we're going through right now is temporary compared to what is coming, to the glory of what, what awaits us, right, in the terms of, 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 of God's goodness, right? So our suffering really in the long term is insignificant. He says in 19, uh, for the creation waits for the eager, with, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from the bondage uh, to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. We're waiting for Christ to return. All of creation's been waiting for Christ to return. Yeah, that's the thing that we need to understand. People have been waiting, I mean, anticipating for Christ to return. We do so eagerly, just like creation. Verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves, have, we have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Which is the last couple of things I want to, uh, for you to note about waiting on the return of Christ. Number one is we're to do so in patience, right? We need to be patient as we wait for God. And then we need to wait in hope. And, and, and as the world continues to turn, as the darkness continues to grow, we need to be patient and we need to, we need to keep hope alive. We need to continue to remind ourselves and think about our hope. Paul said that our suffering is nothing in comparison to our hope. Then why do so many people of us, so many of us despair? Why do we lose heart? Why do we get so discouraged? Because we have failed to keep alive the hope that we have by focusing on that hope. Our hope is not to live a pain-free life here and now. I just want you to know that. Our hope isn't to live a pain-free life here and now. Our hope is not to be materially rich. Okay? Some will attain it, some won't. Right? Our hope is not to have everything in our lives be perfect, to be nice if it would, but it's not going to be. It's not our hope. Our hope is not to get our way all the time. Our hope is bigger than this life. Our hope is not to have a perfect marriage. Now, I'm saying if you trust Christ as a couple, your marriage can certainly be better. If you make Jesus the center of your life, your marriage can certainly be better. But your hope is not to have a perfect marriage. And our hope is not to be good people. All right? Our hope is not to solve all of our own problems. That's not our hope. Our hope is that when this life is over, either by our death or the return of Christ, that when we meet God, we will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
right? Our hope is when we stand before God that last day at judgment, and when all of the charges, and believe me, there's a lot of them, when all the charges are read against you, right? When God reads everything that you've ever done, then he pronounces the verdict paid in full by the blood of Christ. That is our hope. Our hope is when we step across into eternity, right? And we live then forever in the life-giving presence of God, where there's no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow, where we have perfect, unstained relationships with other people who trust in Christ. That we'll be reunited with the loved ones that we have lost. We'll be, we, be reunited with the people that we've lost too soon. We'll be reunited with, with our moms and our dads and our grandparents and some of us even our children. We'll be reunited with those people that we love so much and to never, ever, ever lose them ever again for eternity. That is our hope. Our hope is 100% found in Jesus Christ. And when we despair... And when we lose heart, it's because we have misplaced our hope. We put our hope into something else. But let me remind you, as the the hymn writer wrote, my hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest fame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let us renew our hope. Let us encourage one another in that hope as we wait for the glorious day when Jesus will come back and make all things right. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And we thank you for the abundant supply because we need lots and lots of it every single day. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that it speaks to us, that you've chosen this means to to talk to us, that you have decided that that's how you want to reach us. And so, Father, I just pray that uh, we would continue to unpack it and, and to live it, Lord, and that we would walk in it, Lord, that we would just understand that we just need to trust you and obey you. If there's two words that we can learn today, Lord, that we would just trust and obey, trust and obey, walking every day, trusting and obeying you, Lord, that we would know that then you would work things out. We know that you're sovereign. We know that you're good. We know that you know all things. You know, you work things out for the good of those who love you. Well, we love you, Lord, and so we're going to trust you and walk in that. And so I pray with a renewed heart, Lord, that all of us would wait on you in that. And Father, we just stand here declaring with the rest of the world, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come to us, Father. The world continually makes less and less sense to us. We see things that are happening around us. We see the way that people treat each other. And we just, we stand, obviously, all of us stand and wonder, how much longer can it go on, Lord? And obviously, you know the answer that we don't. But as we wait... And as we contemplate those questions, let us be found busy doing the work that you call us to do. Let us feed the hungry. Let us clothe the naked. Let us, let us love on, on the unlovable, Lord. Let us go and reach out to the, to, to the brokenhearted. Let us weep with those who, who weep, Lord. Let us go visit those who are shut in, Lord. Let us do all the things that Jesus is calling us to do. 
Father, sometimes we just want to get so twisted off and wonder, you know, we, we ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus just went out and loved people. So help us to just love people with a reckless abandon and go out there and just share the hope of Jesus with them, Father. And I pray, Father, that you're glorified in everything that we say and do here. And Father, I'm begging you, I'm desperately begging you to raise up a people in this place who love you and who are passionate for your name and who will go outside into this community and storm the gates of hell and rip it off, rip, rip the gate off its hinges and bring your captives home, Lord. I pray, Father, you're glorified in all that we say and do. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.